On September 2, 1994, in Huntsville, Arkansas, a woman is found beaten and strangled to death. Though she left plenty of suspects behind, her murder remains unsolved to this day. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruise Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Billy Jean Phillips. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist, extremely wet basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. So we have had no less than probably a metric ton of rain since our last recording. Yeah, it's it's been pretty damp out. Yeah, it's a little sloshy. Yeah. My, my yard has my yard has decided that there will be no more water taken into the ground. It just lays on the top. Now, the, what's funny is when we get a lot of rain at a, in a short period of time, my ditches overflow. The ditches are, you know, relatively, you know, shallow, but my yard has just thrown in the towel and said to hell with it. We'll just let it stand. Yeah, what's funny is down here in Georgia, the opening weekend of duck season, there was hardly any water to be seen, and it was scarce. So if you found a puddle, that's what you hunted. There was the first two weeks of the season, then they have what they call the split, and then this Saturday, just yesterday, season opened up again and will run through January, and let me tell you, there was no shortage of finding water yesterday, and I am going to gift young coach some very lovely, fresh duck breast with the fat still intact because that's how he likes it. Oh, I can't wait. I'm on, oh, it's going to be so good. Yeah, I'm giving you two different species. You'll have to report back to the people which species you like to eat the best. Hell, I like that duck. That's all I'm going to know. I'm not going to know the damn species of it. You just be like the bigger ones tasted better, but them little skinny ones, man, they was good. <laughs> uh, we have a new a patron, Josie O'Kelly from Northwest Arkansas, longtime listener, brand new patron. Stated, I first started listening a year ago after a family trip to Panama City Beach, Redneck Riviera. We started on episode one and listened all the way to the most up-to-date episode. As a big murder mystery fan myself, I find y'all's accents more soothing to the ear than most of the ones I hear on other podcasts. Keep on keeping on and let me know if y'all ever need any beer from the natural state. Well, Miss Josie Kelly, we are not one to turn down any beer of from any state. So if you are willing, you from need what to state? Arkansas. Oh, <clears throat> I knew that. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, don't listen to me. Everyone, no one listens to me anymore. Anyway, <laughs> but you do need to uh, message us again because I we have a couple of flavors that only are found in the great state of Arkansas, so we can definitely use them. Chuck Ball has done a beer run eastbound and down for us before. Uh, Mr. Hartline is always quick to point out the, the uh, I guess I would just go ahead and say, the greatest liquor store he frequents when I do get to visit him during duck season. So, yeah, we will take Arkansas beer whenever you are willing to send it our way. Absolutely. Now, there any, is a... Anywhere, any place. Uh, we had another patron message uh, from Richard Smothers. He 
loves the missing 411 and wrote us a long, long post about all of the great cryptid slash weird shit that goes on around the missing 411 and Skinwalker Ranch. So we do appreciate all of our listeners reaching out to us. No new five-star reviews, but that's quite all right. That's Um, okay. We got plenty. That's right. Now, we did have another new patron, a Miss Carissa Baker, who joined at the $1 tier. And I forgot to say that Miss Josie O'Kelly joined at the $3 tier. So, Miss O'Kelly, we will be sending you your decals. Hopefully this week, as our patrons get this early than the regular listeners, please understand it was not our intention to delay it. I've just had some... Family health issues going on that kind of sidetracked, and then we are in the full swing of wrestling season, so coaches' days are kind of limited. Oh my no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, I do, and and that's the thing. You know, it's a great sport, but coaching it sucks. Well, we did we did a two day tournament in Chattanooga, so we had to leave school early, which is great. We got there at four, didn't leave on Friday night till eleven thirty. And the four wrestlers we had left in the tournament were all eliminated by 10 a.m. on Saturday. So we, we drove all the way back out there. <laughs> it is one of the hardest tournaments in the southeast. So, I mean, I'm not going to. I will say when I saw, you know, you posted on social media back at it. And uh, I will say when I realized what tournament y'all were in, I was like, ooh, they're going to find out who's the big boys. Uh, well, we found out we weren't. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> Well, all right. So tonight, as you could gather from the opening, we are going rehash, to rehash, man. Yes, right. We're we are revisiting. We revisiting the case that has, well, right before Thanksgiving, we got a little traction, and we thought there was some new information out, or maybe a suspect had been arrested or questioned. But no, it was just I think some people found our lovely it, podcast. Yeah, we got like some abnormally large amount of traffic about this case in like one day and by abnormally large it was like four posts about it. four separate people posted and asked questions we did it is episode 16 we're on this is episode 160 something four. so it was a long time ago and it's just weird that on the same day random people started messaging us so yeah we we reached out to some of our long term term <laughs> our long time listeners in northwest arkansas and asked them if, hey, hey, is there any traction on Billy Jean's case? And so a couple of them were like, not that I've heard, but let me make some phone calls. And so within about an hour, I messaged Coach back and was like, they say there's not anything going on, but we're we're definitely getting some some the four one one drop. So, but anyway, got, I will. I mean, you got us thinking about the case again, and we revisited our own podcast, and you revisited your notes on said podcast, and. We realized for such a popular episode, we didn't do a great job at all. No, we did not. <laughs> I messaged him and was like, because we were, I was like, man, this week's going to be easy. I'll just pull up my notes. We'll just go back through them. You know, I messaged him the night we were going to record. And I was like, uh, we going to have to kick this one back a couple of days, bro. <laughs> I don't see like how a third grader probably could have wrote the notes better than I had. So I had to go back in and edit them. Uh, polish them up a little bit and then I found some new information and so this is going to be totally different from episode 16 so this is not just a retelling 
of the same stuff. Um, I will say that the biggest is it a reboot? It is a reboot. Was it the director's cut? What is this? Yeah, we could say it's the director's cut, the basement cut. <laughs> I like that. That's nice. <laughs> Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and you can find their newspaper online at arkansasonline.com. And for a dollar, you can read every article they ever had. Just as little as a dollar, you can continue to read every article. <laughs> but I will say they did a great job covering this back in 96, uh, 97. They have kept up with it, and there was an update in 2003. But yes, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette was not afraid to ask the old hard questions. So let's get into it and get after it. On the morning of Saturday, September the 3rd, 1994, at 11.58 a.m., Madison County, Arkansas Sheriff's Office received a call about a, quote, unattended death. Now, the sheriff of the county, a one infamously known Mr. Ralph Baker, was squirrel hunting when he heard the radio call go out. His office was radioed by him at 12.27 p.m. and asked that a Arkansas State Police criminal investigator, Doug Fogley's number, be relayed to him. Sheriff Baker then contacts Doug Fogley's number, and according to bystanders at the time of the phone call, this was the transcript. Sheriff Baker says, Billy Phillips is dead, and Fogley's like, so? And Baker says, Billy Phillips, god damn it, Rusty Kane's been fucking her. Rusty could be a goddamn suspect. How do you keep the deputy prosecuting attorney out of the crime scene and hung up on the Arkansas State Investigator? So to say... I I mean, the so? What? Yeah. What do you mean, so? (laughs) So to say that Sheriff Baker was a little concerned is an understatement. This little snippet of a conversation would be so telling when we get into this case because Deputy Danny Livermore happened to be the first officer on the scene, and by the time he shows up, Rusty Kane, who is the prosecuting attorney for Madison County, along with Billie Jean's brother and Billie Jean's sister, had all been at the house for at least 10 minutes, according to Livermore. Now, we will get into something later that says they were there a lot longer than 10 minutes. Now, Deputy Livermore would find the body of Billie Jean lying against a wall. The bedroom in which she was found was splattered with blood, and her son's t-ball bat was lying on the bed. It had been used to beat Billie Jean with fracturing her skull. Now, the murderer had used such force that the bat had splintered. And a, some very large amounts of rage in this killing. Now, yeah. according to the toxicology screening, meth was found in Billy's bloodstream. Now, hold on to that because we'll get back to that later. kind of indicates when said meth was ingested. Now, if anybody from northwest Arkansas has been living under a rock most of their life and don't know who Sheriff Ralph Baker is, you really need to in- research him. There is a book. When you have your own book, yes. tell all book written about your life and your exploits and how you 
abused your office. You know, you didn't really. Man's infamous. Let's just say that. Yes, he was at one time the longest running sheriff in the state of Arkansas. Uh, and we have kicked around the idea of doing a Sheriff Ralph Baker episode, but the information will mostly come from the book When Money Grew on Trees, as well as some other telling cases that may have occurred in there. We have a private investigator up there in northwest Arkansas that goes by Billy Bale, and uh, he has reached out. Well, actually, he's reached out about an, another case that he's working on that we may kind of tease for him. He's going to start a serial podcast on that, but uh, he said that he's got plenty of stories, so we are kicking around that idea. But getting back to Billy Jean's case, the sheriff's office conducted its investigation, and Sheriff Baker and the state investigator, Mr. Fogley, would allow Rusty Kane to enter and exit the residence for a total of four hours after Deputy Livermore had arrived. Others at the scene would notice Kane having bloodstains on his shoes, a vacuum cleaner left in the middle of the bedroom with the bag missing, a black case protruding from under Billy's dresser along with the upstairs loft bed that was unmade with the curtain pulled over the curtain rod so as to have a clear line of sight from upstairs. Now, Billy's family would state that no one, to their recollection, had ever used that bedroom up there. The sheets were never collected as evidence. Now, one week later, a good old Rusty is fired for interfering in the investigation. That'll do it. Airtime. Yeah, airtime. A year and a half. A year and a half after Billy's death, her case was assigned to a special prosecutor who was said to have been a private investigator and an ex-FBI agent. As of 2009, the Madison County Sheriff's Office has taken the case back over, and it is still unsolved. Now, like I said earlier, Sheriff Baker was Madison County's longest-running sheriff from 73 to 1998. Sheriff Baker never commented on the case of Billie Jean and blamed two independent investigators with keeping him in the dark about the details of the case. After 16 months of investigation, the two investigators, which were non-paid positions, resigned under alleged pressure from Sheriff Baker. Jack D. Knox, a retired FBI agent of 29 years and one of the two special investigators, states that the prosecuting attorney at the time, Terry Jones of Fayetteville, Arkansas, told him not to investigate allegations of corruption against any local law enforcement official and not to take any of the evidence to the FBI. Knox would go on to state that Baker and Fogley took back over the investigation. Knox deleted references to confidential sources he stated were afraid for their safety and gave Jones his notes on September the 29th. Now, Jones would immediately take them to the FBI, and a week later, Knox turns over his unredacted notes to special agent in charge of operations in Arkansas, Mr. either I.C. Smith or L.C. Smith. And here's the thing. If you're going to use someone's initials as their name don't use a font that makes the l look like an i if it's an l I just, <laughs> one of my little pet peeves 
Come on, man. Pick your battles, dude. That's the hill you're standing on. It's the hill I'm going down today. You're going down that hill today? I'm, go- I'm going with don't use Ariel and don't use Calibri. Okay. Oh, man. Comic Sans, bro. Don't use Comic <laughs> Or Times New Roman. I mean, what's wrong with Times New Roman? Don't you get me started. <laughs> Oh, now Rusty Kane's attorney, John Lyle, had pushed for a year for an inv- a official FBI investigation of the county's drug trafficking problem and its ties to the murder. Now, Everett and Knox said problems with Baker reached the breaking point when they developed fresh leads involving the drug scene. At the heart of the confrontation over the drugs, investigators said, was Baker's reluctance to bring in a Madison County man for DNA testing, a man repeatedly identified as a meth dealer during... Arkansas Democrat Gazette interviews. So we get into, there's a couple of high points in this investigation. And like I said earlier, the Gazette did a great job with really keeping this case in the media. Now they would go on to interview over 130 people that included Northwest Arkansas lawmen and government officials, prison inmates, former and current Madison County drug dealers, and the friends and family of Billy Jeans. Most people only spoke reluctantly on the basis of anonymity. Almost everyone expressed an enigmatic fear of Sheriff Ralph Baker. Now, the Gazette uncovered dozens of court cases and other records, including documents detailing a past crime, a beating, and more than 40 land transactions involving Sheriff Baker. Now, Billie Jean was rumored to have paid off the drug debts of her brother, Robert McKnight. One man from whom McKnight bought his drugs from, a man named Steve Hathorne, beat Robert over a debt from drugs and building materials a year after Billie Jean's death. But Robert McKnight would tell investigators the incident had happened in the weeks before Billie Jean's death. Now, investigators Everett Knox asked that Hathorne be required to undergo the DNA testing, a request they said was the one that I previously referenced where Baker just flatly told them they just needed to quit investigating. Hathorne, however, was finally tested on September the 22nd, more than six weeks after Everett and Knox were off the case. So, there's a little bit of a home field advantage, I think, getting arrested in Madison County. And one former drug dealer, early considered a suspect in Billy Jean's murder, says he was involved in plans with Hathorne, Dennis Cords, Rory Allen Gregory, and Joe Benton Head to build a meth lab in a cave that just so happened to neighbor Billy Jean's house. Cords and a private investigator who helped him escape from the Washington County Jail were later convicted of building the biggest meth lab in U.S. history. And Gregory has been convicted of attempting to manufacture methamphetamine and possession of drug paraphernalia. In 1997, federal agents were seeking to interview Cords about Billie Jean's death. Now, Rusty Kane worked as both a private attorney and a public official in a fatal automobile accident involving Billie Jean, with whom he began a long-running affair with in the early 80s. That'd be the 1980s for you millennials out there. (laughs) 
think there's, I think they're like Gen Zs now. I don't know. Shit, my son said something Are today. Are we too old to know the generation? Yeah, I just don't <laughs> give a shit. But my son said something today about, you mean back in the 1900s? And I just kind of looked at him like, I will slap you. Oh. Yeah. Well, no, I knowing how I know your son, he probably needs a good slapping anyway, but definitely yeah. for something like that. Yeah. He slotted me. I'm going to have to slap that mouth. <laughs> <laughs> now, Sheriff Baker was known to sometimes carry in his personal vehicle drugs that he had seized as evidence. As a teenager, his daughter, which we could do another episode on just her, a Miss Patricia Baker, and her friend... Well, do a break off just call Arkansas Brews. I know we've talked about that a few times, but man, there's a lot of messed up stuff goes on in Arkansas. We could cover it all that we cover here too. We could cover murders, mysteries, and the mayhem all just in the great state of Arkansas. And we still I mean, we've done so many things from Arkansas. We still haven't done Boys on the Tracks or West Memphis. Or us or even Mina. I mean the hell, that one's a three or four episode right there. Yep. We hadn't even touched the Dixie Mafia in the great state of Arkansas either. We ain't touching the Dixie Mafia in the great state of Georgia either because I like I standing upright. I don't know anything about any type of Dixie Mafia. I don't think that's the actual thing. Just want to go on record and state that. And if they are, I'm sure they're doing great. If they do exist, I'm sure they're doing great things for their community, and I will not stand here while you sully their good name. Please direct all hate mail to Arlo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, so Sheriff Baker was known, like I said, to carry some drugs that he supposedly seized as evidence. Well, his daughter, Patricia Baker, and her friend, Sandra Harp, just happened to find some of those in the glove box of the sheriff's truck one evening. And on March 2nd, 1977, old Patricia and Sandra, they got high as a kite, or as a guy that we used to work with said, they were higher than a giraffe's ass. Now, the two would state, that the marijuana that they smoked that night, having only smoked two joints, got them higher than they had ever been off of smoking just two joints. And they got into a wreck, and they called Daddy, and Sheriff Baker comes and removes the drugs from his truck after the accident. There were no criminal charges filed, despite the fact that Sheriff Baker would acknowledge it later that his daughter had perjured herself giving pre-child testimony in a civil suit that was later filed. Now, contrary to accepted practices among state and local police agencies, Sheriff Baker maintains that he does not keep any inventory of drugs or other evidence seized by his office. He also keeps no log of the drugs he destroys, along with the fact that he does not obtain court orders, for the destruction of drugs, creating what other police officials say is the potential for theft. Sheriff Baker dismissed that concern during a three-hour interview in June of 1997, stating, it don't happen here, period. Now, Sheriff Baker and his wife, sometimes in partnership with other family members, have bought and traded for at least 2,300 acres in Madison, Washington, and Franklin counties. They have paid out about $484,000, including one $200,000 purchase. In that time, Baker has only taken out one mortgage for $8,000. Basically, he's paid cash for everything except that $8,000 mortgage. And you may be asking yourself, Self, what's a sheriff making in parts? Well, 
Sheriff Baker, who is not only the sheriff, but he's also the local tax collector, makes a whopping or made a whopping $31,000 a year while all this was going on. Hmm. And he declines to talk about his land holdings and dealings when it is brought up by the press. And you may be asking yourself, self, what the hell does this have to do with anything that in a murder? Well, we're trying to lay the groundwork that Billie Jean ran in circles that were not always on the up and up. And so we're giving you the old character backstories for just about everyone involved. And we promise that we will get back to her and the fuckery afoot in her investigation. Now, like I said, after the three-hour interview with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette with Sheriff Baker, they come across, I think, his tax records stating that he only owns 1,450 acres. So they wanted to get some, clear up the muddy water. Well, you know, good old Sheriff Baker declined their calls and declined to ever speak to them again. But according to the tax records they found, he owns not only close to 1,500 acres, he also owns a Chevrolet Corvette, a Honda Acura, two Harley-Davidson motorcycles, five trucks, and 19 head of cattle. And that 91 black Corvette has a personal license plate that bears the name Booger One. Did you say Booger One? Oh, that's classy, man. I bet that is. Yeah, there, well, I got a story about young Sheriff Baker here in a little bit that'll make uh, make it even classier. So, But anyway, the father of a drug dealer in Madison County says he gave Sheriff Ralph Baker two envelopes containing a total of $1,200 in hopes of easing his son's punishment after a 1986 arrest. Tales of payoffs are the main rumor in Madison County and the surrounding area. Now, a former Madison County oil man, F.M. Miner, said he later negotiated through a Fayetteville attorney to pay another $10,000 to the Madison County Drug Eradication Fund to ensure that his son, Marshall Craig Miner, would not be sent to jail as a habitual felon. With at least four prior convictions involving drugs and violence, Miner got four years of unsupervised probation after a 1995 seizure of drugs and drug paraphernalia from his Madison County farm. Unsupervised. That's insane. On his fifth arrest. So he should have been labeled a habitual violator, and all of them other had should have been pounded on top of him. He should have been looking at 20 years at least. But no, yeah, I mean, unsupervised means he didn't have to pay fines, he didn't have to pay fees, he didn't. Have, he may have to pay a fine, but he didn't have to pay fees, he didn't have to see his probation officer. That's insane. Didn't have to piss in the cup. Didn't have to take drug tests, blood tests, hair samples, nothing. All right. So between 1993 and August of 1997, Baker and three of his deputies had withdrawn twenty four thousand nine hundred fifty dollars from the drug eradication fund for undocumented expenses. Oh yeah, those are there are a lot of those. Yeah, I mean a lot of undocumented expenses, man. You just never really ran a business before, you know. And I mean, ninety seven, <laughs> ninety seven, gas was at an all time high. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I was just now beginning to drive, and I remember filling my tank up. It took like a whole seven bucks. 
<laughs> that adds up over time. It does, I mean, it could add up to $23,000. Or I'm sorry, it's almost $25,000. Easily. Easily. Now, Madison County Clerk Wes Fowler said, as far as he knew, the money went only for the payment of confidential informants. Now, drug dealers who acknowledged being paid by either Baker's agency or the FDA for help with Madison County drug bus say they never received any payment higher than 100 bucks, And that if they did receive a payment for $100, those payments only occurred a few times a year. Right. So, I only got a payment of $100, but only got that payment, you know, 75 times. (laughs) Yeah, but from what I can gather, some of the big wig drug dealers only were asked like two or three times a year. So they made two, three hundred bucks ratting out people. So, but anyway, yeah. It ain't worth it. I mean, I don't know. That's the risk rewards you got to factor into it. You're going to rat people out and risk, you know, bodily injury, maybe worse for 200 bucks a year. I agree. I mean, you can eliminate the competition, I guess, but still. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But the Gazette would go on and find Baker's internal records showing that Baker and Chief Deputy Steve Treat paid a total of $835 to drug enforcements between the same years, 1993 and 1997. And those amounts only ranged from $25 to $125 per payment. Man, if I was getting the $25, I'd be so jealous of the $125 guy. Like, what information he got, I don't got, man. If I knew they had taken out close to twenty-five grand and they were only giving me a hundred bucks, I'd be upset. But from Sheriff Baker's reputation, you probably kept your damn mouth shut. Yeah, true that. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. Now, No other deputies were listed on copies of receipts provided by Baker in response to an Arkansas Freedom of Information Act request. The state last audited the drug fund in 1996. An itemization in the auditor's working paper shows $4,511.93 was paid to confidential informants between July 14th of 1995 and October the 23rd of 1996. Baker's receipts for the same period only shows that he paid out $260. So how does that work? I mean, can you just shyster the... I mean, you're looking at basically $420-ish... $4,200 was paid out, but you only have receipts for $260? Well, I mean, who's, what's, who's the oversight? Who's looking into the books is what I'm questioning, and then... If Sheriff Baker really had that much power, then, you know, you can do whatever the hell you want. And it's clear that he could. And it's clear that he did. (laughs) (laughs) Now we get into a lady known as, or not known as, but a lady named Sandra Harp. Now her... We're going to get harder, right? Eventually, yeah, we will. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to lay the backstory of how crazy Madison County is. And now all of these people are in Billie Jean's circles. She knows every one of these actors. I have no doubt. Now, Sandra Harp and Baker's daughter basically moved freely throughout the sheriff's office and the jail. In an interview in the summer of 1997, Sandra 
said that Sheriff Baker asked her not to talk about the drugs her and his daughter, Patricia, used from his truck before their 1977 automobile accident. During a lawsuit filed by Sheriff Baker and his daughter against the driver of the other vehicle, a man named Rodney Nelson, Sandra Hart would testify that the sheriff's glove compartment contained marijuana, pills, and white powder that she believed to be cocaine in bags marked property of Madison County. Although Baker's daughter denied it, Sandra said the two girls and another lady named Judy Magaud, who just happened to be Sandra's sister, had smoked two joints and got, quote, higher than I usually got off just pot. I mean, just smoking a couple of joints, end quote. Now, in his testimony, Sheriff Baker acknowledged that his daughter had lied during the deposition when she denied ever smoking marijuana. What he didn't realize was that his daughter had said that she smoked marijuana from his glove box that said evidence of Madison County on it. Not only did she perjure herself, she kind of perjured him. Now, a jury would reject claims that Patricia Baker and Rodney Nelson each made that The other had crossed the center line on Arkansas 23, a mile north of Huntsville, near Withrow Springs State Park. Sheriff Baker said in a June 1997 interview that he had probably put the drugs into his truck to drive to the state crime lab in Little Rock for testing. Sure. I mean, he's not going to put them in his official police vehicle. He'll just put them in his pickup truck and take his truck. Anyway. Sandra Harp's insistence that he admonished her to keep her silent is said to have warranted the reply of Sheriff Baker, and he said, quote, that's bullshit, end quote. Now, Sandra's relationship with the sheriff followed her into adulthood, and she was a convicted thief and drug dealer. And at the time, the expose in the Gazette came out, which I think was in 96 or 97, She was 34, and she said she refused when Sheriff Baker asked her to set up his former son-in-law in a drug deal during a 1994 custody fight over the sheriff's granddaughter. Now, Sheriff Baker acknowledged that his former son-in-law may have been on a list of suspects he sought Sandra's help in catching, but that's as far as he would say. Sandra said she then became entangled with the sheriff once again when she just happened to steal $80,000 from a home in the community of Hilltop. I mean, that'll usually get you. That happens, man. Yeah. I mean, you you just look around and you you walk out with a glass, you walk out with a glass and all of a sudden, you know, you've stolen $80,000. I mean, if they didn't want you to steal it, why would it be there? Why is it not nailed down? Yeah. I mean, they just got 80 grand lying around. I mean, she, she was doing them a favor. They wasn't using it. She just took it. Yeah. I mean, clearly they weren't using it. It was sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sarcasm is very thick this year. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying, bro. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm being real. I'm not being sarcastic. He's keeping all. it for real, for real. Not just for real, but he's keeping it for real, for real. <laughs> <laughs> now, Sandra was already on probation for stolen property and drug conventions in Benton County, when her and her former husband, Roger Dale Harp, and another couple decided to break into John Trudeau's house on October the 1st, 1995. 
Trudeau just happened to be at the hospital at the time of the break-in. Now, Sandra was sentenced on May 14th, 1996, to seven years in prison after pleading guilty to burglary, theft of property, and possession of drug paraphernalia. Now, she said that paraphernalia charge, that was just incidental. She just happened to have her pipe on her. The evidence was discovered <laughs> when deputies picked her up for the burglary. I was ha- man, it just happened to be here. Like, man, it's like... <laughs> man, y'all can't hit me with that. I carry that son bitch around with me everywhere. Yeah, you know I keep that thing on me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She goes on to state, quote, I was dealing drugs over there for years and years and years and was never busted for drugs in Madison County. But I happened to steal some stuff in Benton County and I get arrested. Well, no shit. Anyway, she was interviewed by the Gazette at the Arkansas Department of Corrections Tucker Unit about a month before she was released on parole. Now, a young Huntsville man whose criminal record includes multiple convictions for stealing shares Sandra Hart's perception of how things worked. He said he doesn't worry about the criminal consequences of a crystal meth or crank arrest. Now, his habit costs him 4800 to $6,000 a week. He usually makes that money back on the sale of said crystal meth. And is constantly worried about being killed by either his supplier or some of his customers, but never worried about being arrested in Sheriff Baker's county. Hmm. He said that he once asked Sheriff Baker to sell him drugs from the evidence closet. Instead of obliging, Sheriff said, how about you become an informant and gave him 50 bucks? (laughs) <laughs> no nah, man i can't say drugs out of this but i need even cash payment for you <laughs> oh man i think it would have been so much better if he did actually sell the drugs out of evidence lockers like, oh man come on back we got your pick bro yeah come on man you tell me what you want it's like walmart you just pick it i'll tell you i'll write you a receipt that's how I think how that's how Walmart got started in Arkansas, ain't it? Yeah, that's exactly how it got started. They started selling drugs and like, pick, take your pick, man. Yeah. Now this man who is uh, not been given a name because of his anonymity said, "Homebodies don't get in much trouble unless you're kicking down doors." Then Ralph Baker put his foot down. Now, during an interview, Sheriff Baker said he aggressively investigates allegations of drug dealing and denied that his county has a meth problem. Quote, since I've been sheriff, we hadn't hardly got any meth at all, he said in a 1997 interview. So we've kind of skirted around about who Sheriff Baker is and some of the things. So I'll give you a little background on Sheriff Baker. And uh, this is just the Reader's Digest version, so keep that in mind. This is not, It is juicy now, but it's not the full three-course meal that you're looking for. Now, Sheriff Baker was an outlaw before he was a sheriff. A 1958 envelope that once held the details of two felonies still sits in the vault of the old courthouse in the neighboring county of Washington. That envelope, it's empty. But a young deputy circuit clerk found a docket sheet detailing the case of the state of Arkansas versus Mr. Ralph Baker and a man named Mr. Eugene Masterson. 
Now, Ralph pled no contest to burglary and grand larceny charges on April the 2nd, 1958, and drew two years in the Arkansas pen. Now, the judge would defer the sentence pending good behavior, and Baker never saw the inside of the prison. Masterson, meanwhile, escaped from jail and was later arrested in Oklahoma, according to Washington County records. Fort Smith lawyer Matthew Horan once investigated the case in connection with a client he was defending. He tracked it back to a break-in at a South Fayetteville auto shop. Now, Sheriff Baker declined to discuss the case, referring all questions to the empty court file. Quote, I confess to nothing, he said. Baker was driving a lumber truck and working as a bouncer at the Red Fox Lounge in Springdale when then-former Sheriff Fred Crumley made him a deputy in 1971. A year later, Crumbly would retire, and Sheriff Baker went on to win the sheriff's office as part of a slate of political newcomers. Cumbers. Shit. Newcomers defeating the Republican Johnny Reed by a slim margin of 2,088 or 2,844 votes to 2,681 votes. Pretty close. Now, it was a curious election, and there was allegations of widespread voter fraud. Now, there was a court fight that reached the Arkansas Supreme Court twice before Republicans would accept the ruling of Circuit Judge W.H. Enfield that there were not enough illegal votes to change the results. Now, keep this little number in your head now. They discarded 79 absentee votes, that Democratic campaign worker, and then State Representative Steve Smith had gathered from the residents of the Meadowview Nursing Home. But Enfield rejected claims by Republican attorney Erwin, yeah, Erwin L. Davis that Baker and first-term treasurer Bollinger had gotten votes from Oklahomans and people that were not really still alive. Enfield also rejected a five-page, quote, friend of the court brief filed by William Jefferson Clinton, a young University of Arkansas law professor. Clinton argued that Smith was within the law when he circulated absentee ballots around the nursing home and then mailed them back to the courthouse. Testimony showed that in one precinct, 140 people signed in to vote and 150 ballots were cast. I don't know about where you learn how to do math, but that's 15 more than you put out there. As the votes were being counted, Republican poll watcher Dorothy Hoskins swore in an affidavit that a Huntsville man conducted a dollar-a-chance gun raffle and a drunk watered in and filled out a ballot. I'm not making this shit up, y'all. It's really (laughs) real. Yes, they are. It's not true. There's no way. (laughs) Oh, my. It's like us telling stories about shit that went on at the school that we worked at, and everybody's like, there's no way that happened. Yeah, no, it really really did. It really did. He's a real guy. <laughs> and he really did the all those things. <laughs> now, another poll watcher, D- Davis, signed an affidavit saying that Baker spent most of the election day on the porch outside the Hilburn precinct. There, Davis said, one man arrived drunk, signed his ballot, and handed it to the Democratic judge to fill it out. 
In all, Enfield tossed out 150 votes and Democrats admitted to 19, quote, defective ballots. Enfield, now retired in Benton County, Arkansas, said the election challenge was significant, quote, only from the fact that Bill Clinton ended up as governor and as president. That's after the fact. At the time, it didn't seem all that much of a case to me, end quote. But Enfield did say the trial helped illustrate that Madison County is, quote, a different world, end quote. He said the most memorable testimony came from a man who said that Bollinger, who still serves as of 2003 as the county treasurer, personally delivered forms to voters allowing Bollinger to then take their ballots back to the courthouse. So not only could he bring ballots to them, he was allowed to take said ballots back to the courthouse so that they could be filed correctly. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Now, that was perfect, to be honest with you. <laughs> All right, so yes, going back to uh, Ralph Baker, he has also been sued twice. On June 13, 1987, him and a former Huntsville police chief, Ed Sharp, arrested a 19-year-old, and this is where we caught flack, in the first episode, and I apologize, but that's the way it still to this day is written, but I changed it. This 19-year-old man, I have now changed. It was a mentally slow man who, on allegations, were, was said to have stolen two baseball cards during the annual hog fest on the square. The man in question is Joey Bingham, and he began kicking the patrol car before the two officers forced him into the car, drove him back to the sheriff's office, and Sheriff Baker testified in a subsequent civil lawsuit that, yes, he did handcuff Mr. Bingham to a prisoner's retaining ring in the lobby, but that was all that he did. Bingham's attorneys alleged that Baker and his deputy Sharp began beating and kicking the shit out of him, and his attorney stated that not only was the man mentally slow, he also had a speech impediment and functioned about where an 11-year-old would function. According to Bingham's attorneys, the incident lasted 26 minutes. Bingham was protesting that the baseball cards were his. Once that is found out, Sharp tore up the citation he had written and then called Bingham's parents to come pick him up. When they did, they discover that he has had the hell beat out of him, and they drive him to the emergency room at St. Mary's Hospital in Rogers. There, a Dr. Tanya Clater notices that Bingham's left ear was swollen, bruised, and scraped. The back of his head and his ribs were very tender, and the tops of both of his feet had red semicircular marks, which Dr. Clater would attribute to boot heels. That's a good assumption. Now. Baker and Sharp adamantly denied the beating, and Baker told jurors he was unaware that Bingham was mentally slow. Quote, I realized that Joey Bingham had a speech problem at the time. That's all I realized in that he was a very small man. Now, jurors cleared Sharp, but ordered Sheriff Baker to pay Bingham $100,320. The check was issued on June 19, 1989, by a Michigan-based police insurance risk pool company. And with interest, it came to $125,829.76. Now, Bingham's lawyer, Jim Rose III of Fayetteville, was pressing hard during the two-day trial 
And this would give the public a glimpse into Ralph Baker's growing financial holdings. Sheriff Baker testified that he earned a little less than $20,000 a year back then, but that he owned 640 acres of forest and farmland in Madison and Franklin counties and a share of a lake lot in Missouri. Now, Sheriff Baker declines to discuss the Bingham case, but a friend and a fellow law enforcement officer said that Sheriff Baker lost the case because of his choice of clothing. Sheriff Baker was a known Harley enthusiast, and he decided that he was going to wear his biker gear to court. So he wore tan pants, a black shirt, gold chains to a federal courthouse to testify. Sharp, who now works for the U.S. Marshal Service in Fayetteville, also declined to talk about the case. Quote, I'm not going to give you the time of day, so piss off. I'm retired. I'm alive, and that's the way I plan to be. And turned around and walked off. Now, the other allegation, arrest, whatever you want to look at, was a bachelor party for a federal drug agent that led to another allegation of brutality against Sheriff Baker. Now, Gary Wayne Johnson, a worker at the Wesley Broomhandle factory, sued Sheriff Baker, Chief Deputy Steve Treat, and former Deputy Steve Corkin, who is now the Huntsville, Arkansas's police chief. Johnson said they beat him up after he interviewed in a squabble between Sheriff Baker and a female employee at Fayetteville's Bottoms Up Club on March 4th, 1993. Johnson... I like it. Johnson... It's a strong name. That's two months from graduating high school when this all went down. (laughs) Johnson alleged that Baker, the two officers, and an unidentified woman in biker's leathers entered the club with guns and a party ball. And if you don't know what a party ball was back in the early 90s, well, it was a a plastic sphere of beer in a box that served as a portable keg. It went flat so fast. (laughs) But... Granted, it didn't last long either, to be honest with you. <laughs> I remember when I was in college, we bought a keg on a Friday so we could drink all weekend for Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, we had to buy two more kegs that weekend. <laughs> I remember graduating from college buying what I thought, hey, man, we'll just need a pony keg. That's 15 gallons of beer. We ain't going to drink that much in about four or five hours. In three hours, it was gone. Yeah. Yeah. Keg beer sends out, when you tap a keg, it sends out a signal. <laughs> Most people can't hear it. You just feel it. <laughs> and believe me, we did it on the second floor of my dorm room, and we're getting people from the first floor, getting people from the next dorm over. They're just like, man, we felt the keg. Like, you guys got cups? We brought our own cups. Don't worry. <laughs> that was the big thing. Brett, you better bring your own cup. All right, so Johnson alleged that Baker, the two officers, and the the ladies, they get in there and they start partying with their uh, party ball. They are strapped, and Baker begins arguing with a female employee on behalf of an unidentified woman. So Johnson, not knowing who Baker is, says, why don't you cool down? That's no way for a sheriff to be acting. Well, Johnson says that then Corkin invited him outside, And as they are moving towards the front door, he said that Baker hits him in the face, and then he was pushed back inside the club where Deputy Treat hits him in the face, and management of the club breaks up the fight. Johnson would go on to the hospital, and there was no arrest made. Now, one of Baker's 
fellow partygoers said recently that Johnson started the incident by attacking Corkin and that Baker had not even been at the club yet. But in a pretrial testimony, the club owner, a one Jenny Ward, cited three separate incidences involving Sheriff Baker that night. She said Baker and the other police officers were there to celebrate the the marriage of drug enforcement agent Lance King. The celebration got so rowdy that she had to shut the club down. Johnson would drop his lawsuit 12 days before it was supposed to go to trial, saying that his family could not stand the stress. His attorney would tell the court that he was, quote, personally disappointed with Johnson's decision. Quote, we do not believe our case is less viable than we thought all along. We are more convinced than ever that we have a lawsuit against these three defendants, end quote. So, circling back, I know we've gone on a wide arc. Madison County is also known as Booger County, and that's where the old Booger 1 license plate comes from. It is, despite what Sheriff Baker says, known for its crank or crystal meth because they were getting it from California and Mexico, but they was also brewing. Uh, they used to drive it up in motorcycle crankshafts. That's where it got his nickname. <laughs> Where'd you learn that, Cheech? Drug school. <laughs> Holy shit, I'm crying. <laughs> oh, it's true, though. Tell me it ain't. Tell me it ain't. I ain't telling you shit. <laughs> oh, God almighty. But Booger County had its own flavor that was supposed to be very well known. And the people of Madison and Newton County say they knew everybody was selling it. And with a house or a handful of household chemicals and some ingredients used in some hog feed, they could produce a drug that sold for $1,600 to $2,000 an ounce. Good Lord. That's not bad. No, not if you're using hog feed and some stuff you find under your, your uh, sink. I mean, I'm sure it was not healthy for you. Oh, no, no. He'd probably rot your teeth out, but I mean, hell, what you going to need them chompers for? Yeah, they make baby food. Yeah. You got a blender? Hell, mix that shit up. For one drug dealer dealer who operates within a mile of downtown Huntsville, that means raising and spending as much as $6,000 a week. He talked about how he... Did it in one day, one summer evening. He, in his mid-twenties at the time, had graying hair. And by late morning, he had already finished his seventh Budweiser while he was detailing his exploits to reporters. (laughs) Could you imagine a reporter sitting in this old boy's trailer and it being 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning? He's over there. Ah, it's my seventh one I'm having this morning. I've been up since nine. <laughs> Got a late start on it. <laughs> you know, you can't drink all day if you don't drink all day. <laughs> yeah, no, you said that wrong. You can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning. That's true. Hey, you can't misquote Aristotle like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got tongue-tied halfway through that last section, so <laughs> I'm just trying to finish this. Now, this genius goes on to say that Crank's not his only intoxicant of choice. He made up his own word, too. 
He's it's my, it's my seventh <laughs> beer, but I'm good. But man, this is not my intoxicant of choice, man. <laughs> I like other intoxicants. <laughs> man may drink seven beers at nine a.m., but he will not free base cocaine. He won't do it. I'm. <laughs> I mean, unless it's his birthday, <laughs> you know, he'll pull out that pop and he'll base. <laughs> Uh, I am sweating my ass off. I have laughed so hard. If anybody knows that, they're laughing. If other people that haven't heard that will not know. Just get on the YouTube and, and type Google. that in. I will not free base cocaine. <laughs> All right, so back to the old genius here. He says that he knows he will sell enough in a week to support his habit and pick up a little sex with a neighbor woman along the way. He said he would start, or I'm sorry, he started smoking marijuana at the age of 10, and then he moved to harder drugs when he was 13 and dropped out of school after the ninth grade, and he isn't afraid of being arrested by Sheriff Baker. He says that Baker has told him the rules, but he expects to die by September. He peeks out of the window at each passing car. Quote, you know you're talking to a dead man. One guy held a shotgun in my face for over an hour last week. He said, I fucking owed him money, and I didn't. He thought I did. He said I'd be dead by September anyway. The drug dealer, which was still alive as of the October interview that he is giving, said he had no choice but to continue to deal methamphetamine from his family home. Although he has been committed for drug and psychiatric treatment, he said there's no way out of the crank scene. Quote, all I do all day is sit around this house and wait for them to come. Any minute, somebody could pull up here and come for me. But I'm ready for them when they come. I got a pistol back there, and if somebody comes for me, I'm ready. The man isn't married, but has a live-in girlfriend from time to time. They usually leave him when he smokes their share of the crank. He just moves on to the next woman that's willing to trade sex for drugs. And in his little Huntsville drug community, sex is just another form of currency. Good Lord, man. He's not, I mean, you know, when you describe it like that, it don't sound like that bad of a life, you know, when you sugarcoat it like that. Oh, it gets better. You ready? Sit back. Oh, I'm ready. I'm he ready. says, and I quote, this girl down the street, I got an ounce right now. I probably do half of it right away, put the rest up to this afternoon. Then I'd go on, and after supper, I'd probably have that half again and do a quarter with that and with what's left, I'd cut off one little corner and I'd save it and then do the rest of that. The remaining corner of the day would buy sex with a little return investment about 9 p.m. I'd go down and say, hey, look at what I got, but it's going to cost you. She'll say, okay, what's left is about $10 worth and I'll give it to her, but she'll have to give me half of it back. He smiles at a 1996 FBI map detailing drug labs seized in Arkansas. It only shows two meth labs busted in Benton County. The DEA has identified one of them as the largest in U.S. history, but it shows seven labs busted in Washington, one in Franklin, one in Crawford, and one in Carroll counties. There are no busts inside Madison County because they don't have a meth problem. That's why. I mean, that's what Sheriff Baker said. Now, the drug dealer said the map doesn't surprise him. Quote, Ralph don't pull up with any bullshit. 
Ralph don't care if you use drugs. He's told me, if you want to mess your mind up, that's your fault. You go right ahead, end quote. But when you start breaking down doors, that's when Ralph gets mad, and he don't deal with that. All right, so hopefully I painted a rosy picture for everyone out there. So after an hour and 15 minutes, we about to get into the case? Uh, yeah, after about 45 minutes, but yeah, we're going to get oh, it into it. seems like every bit of an hour and 15. <laughs> now, <laughs> let's get back to our suspects and some motives in Billie Jean's case. Well, you didn't even really talk about how she died or what happened to we her. We get into that too, son. Some. Well, you going to give the suspects first? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of the... You're yep. not Martin Scorsese, man. I am today. I am today. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rusty Kane and Chick Phillips both were suspects. Rusty, of course, remember, is the prosecuting attorney that was in love with her. And Chick would take the polygraph test within two or three days of the murder. Both would fail some responses. I know that's a shocker. Now, it would have been nearly impossible, said one investigator, for men who had loved Billie Jean to have denied that they ever entertained thoughts of killing her. A week later, Kane crossed the imaginary line that his boss had drawn for him when he called the state crime lab for information on the case. His role as a Madison County prosecutor ended that day, September 9th, 1994, at 5 p.m. Terry Jones, prosecuting attorney of Fayetteville, who had been, or I'm sorry, who was put in charge of the official investigation into Billie Jean's death, wrote to Kane that day, stating, quote, since our phone conversation, the arrow has apparently moved to a critical point. This is my written renunciation of your previously granted authority to prosecute all felonies and misdemeanors in Madison County, Arkansas. Rusty, not going to take it lying down, hires a former state senator, Lyle. And when Terry Jones, the prosecuting attorney of Fayetteville, summons Rusty's wife, Sharon, to his Fayetteville office, where there was a room full of investigators, he proceeds to threaten to charge Miss Kane with perjury on the basis of statements from an earlier conversation the two had had. Lyle would abruptly end the interview and said that Sharon would not be answering any questions, invoking her spousal privilege and her constitutional protection against self-incrimination. Lyle brought in an ex-FBI agent, Richard O'Connell, and his partners, Gary Swearingen and Claude DeLeau. The four men began an investigation that lasted nearly two years and involved interviews of more than 190 witnesses. When he became convinced that the drugs and corruption that we have so duly noted were behind Billie Jean's death, Lyle called in the FBI. His investigators and agents began a series of meetings in October of 1996. Now, Jones's official investigation, meanwhile, ran into several delays at the Arkansas and FBI crime labs and Fogley, the state police investigator who was working with Sheriff Baker, was repeatedly pulled off the case to follow the trail of the Morgan Nick abduction from Alma in June of 1995. Now, Earl and Edna McKnight, Billie Jean's parents, posted a $25,000 reward, hired their own private investigator, and started a petition to replace Jones as the lead investigator. 
Jones would address the media and state that he was concerned that Billie Jean's murder may never be solved due to damages at the crime scene and the long list of possible suspects. On March 29, 1996, saying he wanted to avoid any appearance that he might have a conflict of interest, Jones names Fayetteville attorney John Everett, special prosecutor, and Jack D. Knox, a retired FBI agent of 29 years, as special investigator. Like we stated in the opening, neither would receive a fee. They offered to work for expenses only, and they never sought in reimbursement for those according to the court. They would resign on August the 7th, 1996, and court records and interviews with investigators and with people that have questioned and tested show the number of suspects during that time has steadily grown. Tests to match DNA found under Billie Jean's fingernails have done little to nothing to narrow the list. There are enough motives to fill a detective novel, according to the Gazette's. Now, Rusty Kane and his son, Trey, both have passed DNA tests and talked with investigators. McKnight family members say either one might have been angered when Billie Jean pushed Rusty to get a divorce during the summer of 1994. Now, neither Sharon Kane nor Kane's other son, Blakeney, have been tested. Billie Jean's brother, Robert, and her half-brother, Chris, have both passed DNA tests. Now, they were tested because supposedly, and I, don't, I still don't understand this, supposedly they were taken from her two brothers and her son in an attempt to rule out D, their DNA as a piece in the puzzle because supposedly Billie Jean liked to scratch her back son and would give back scratches to her brothers. Now, Jones and Sheriff Baker have refused to comment on the outcome of the boys' test. Tanya Sharp, the daughter of Randy Sharp, is being sought for questioning. Investigators have questioned Michelle Suddeth, whose husband, Keith Suddeth, was dating Tanya Sharp at the time of the murder. Warren Coger, who owned a Huntsville car wash, clashed with, clashed with Billie Jean months before her death. She claimed his equipment had scratched her truck. She had it repainted, then sued the car wash owner for the $2,500 bill, and he would go on to tell a mutual friend, quote, I'd just as soon to see that bitch dead than do business with her, end quote. Coger's father, Larry, a former Huntsville pharmacist, was convicted in 1994 of killing an exotic dancer in Fayetteville and trying to burn her body in a Madison County creek bed. Warren would testify at the trial that the two men discussed how to dispose of the dancer's body. Since he knew Billie Jean and was in love with Billie Jean, he would, uh, say, have some prior knowledge how to get rid of a body. But, like we said, she was beaten to death and not burned. Now, Billy J. Holt, a 39-year-old tractor mechanic and convicted meth dealer from Huntsville, passed a DNA test. Him and a group of his friends from Huntsville shared drugs and sex at the time of Billie Jean's death, and they all are still a main target of the investigators. Now, witnesses reported they saw bloody clothes in Holt's house in Huntsville the day after Billie Jean's murder, and one of Holt's close associates said she saw a bloody club in the cab of Holt's pickup. 
Holt adamantly denied the existence of the clothes and said the club was used to kill road crossing possums. There you go. <laughs> the club was used. Wait, so you just hop out of your car and chase down a possum? Right. Now, at the time of Billie Jean's death, a group of meth users whose members included her brother, Robert, Billy Holt, Holt's girlfriend, Janet Brand, man named Del Harp, his new wife, Sandra, Sam Hicks of Harrison, who now faces a plethora of drug charges, and a group of friends from Farmington, Knob Hill, Prairie Grove, and Springdale. The group would spend their days and nights on a steady high fuel of meth. They sold drugs to each other to finance their habits. When they ran out of money, they would steal household goods from each other. And finally, once those were gone, they would steal household goods from outsiders. When their belongings were gone and they were scared to steal anymore around Huntsville, they would move on to the neighboring counties. During their sleepless binges, the group would sometimes seek refuge in the caves in the wildlife management area next to Billie Jean's house. They complained that helicopters and airplanes dogged them and then would worry when the drugs wore off that they were suffering from delusions. When things got too intense, Pitts would cast spells on her enemies. Pitts, would li- who lived at a Ridgecrest apartment, while Holt and Bran lived across the creek from her in a small house in the woods. Now Holt, Billy Holt, was known as Billy B-12 because he used vitamin B-12 to cut his drugs with. (laughs) So you're advertising the fact that your stuff ain't as good as most. (laughs) Come to me, man. I get that vitamins for you, bro. (laughs) You're going to feel good. I'm going to give you some B-12. The others in the group, along with Billy and the thriving drug trafficking scene, were going around arrest-free during the months before Billie Jean died. In fact, Billy and Bran worked for the DEA in 94. That went south when Holt, equipped with a body microphone, announced to a target that he was, quote, I'm wearing a wire. I mean, when it comes down to it, it was not until two months after the murder that Holt was arrested and charged with two counts of delivering meth, the undercover buys by Detective Laney Morris had taken place January 31st and February 22nd, 1994, more than six months earlier. Billy Holt would plead the charges down to a single count of meth possession and got 10 years probation. So, on the murder of, oh, I'm sorry, on the morning before the murder of Billy Jean, Holt felt comfortable enough about his relationship with local authorities to drag a fight with his wife and girlfriend onto the lawn of the Madison County Courthouse. He wanted sheriff deputies to calm her down. But at 12.38 a.m., according to police records, the couple's day-long fight over money and sex reared its head again. While Holt was being questioned, his girlfriend, Brand, slapped him. Sheriff's deputies photographed Brand's injuries along with Holt's. Brand was bleeding from the cut from a cut on the bridge of her nose, and she had a bruise on her left arm in the shape of a handprint and a scuff on her right elbow. Then deputies checked the couple's records on their computer and found some interesting things about meth. They arrested Brand on a contempt of court citation from Berryville. Huntsville police officer 
Bill Nelson drove her to the county line, turned her over to Carroll County Sheriff's deputy. But upon taking custody of her, no one mentions her injuries in a report that was filed. He, Billy Holt, was then booked into the Madison County Jail on an assault charge. He bonded out about two hours later. Now, around midnight, the night of the murder, Billy Holt appeared at Pitt's front door, according to a statement taken by Rusty Kane's investigators. A friend from Washington County had had a fight with her husband and had brought her two children to Pitts' apartment. The woman said she was on the telephone when she heard a knock on the door and spotted Holt through the peephole. She didn't open the door. Holt came to the apartment again the next day and took Pitts to the bedroom to talk. When they came out, quote, Sheila told me she was going to help Billy clean up his house because him and his wife, Janet, had had a fight and he was afraid she planted drugs on him, end quote. The woman said Pitts told her that night that she had, quote, had to clean up blood and stuff from a fight. She said Pitts gave her a pair of black jeans and some size three shirts from Brand's wardrobe. Pitts, Del Harp, and Sandra Harp all say they went over to Holt's house that afternoon. They deny seeing any blood and say they left when Brand showed up in a truck with her parents. Nevertheless, Pitts is also a focus for investigators. She had pled guilty to possessing meth and just 11 syringes on her after a June 10, 1996 arrest, and she got three years probation. She was arrested again the next year in the summer and accused of selling drugs to an undercover state police officer. Prosecutors have asked that her probation be revoked and a public defender be appointed to her, but no action as of the article in 1996 had been taken. One law enforcement official said charges were filed to pressure Pitts into telling what she knew about Billie Jean's murder. Pitts has told her story only in fragments, and her ramblings have been mixed with fear. After her first meeting with an investigator, she said she returned to her Fayetteville home to find a dozen small baseball bats tied with a nylon cord and lying in her driveway. Quote, it spooked me. I saw those baseball bats in the driveway, and it was dark. My roommate and I went upstairs to close the apartment door and shut the lights off, end quote. Now, that may seem crazy, but what investigators are wanting her to do is to go under hypnosis to discuss a dream that she has. She says, and I quote, I dreamt that the morning after Billie Jean was murdered, I went over there. They couldn't see me. I was invisible. Billie Jean's family was taking things out of the house. Then Billie Jean appeared wearing a flowing white nightgown. Billie comes up beside me. I was just glad no one could see us. Billie and I were just talking. My poor mom. My poor dad. Then, Pitt says, one of the suspects appeared at the house below. He was taking something he had given her, and she was just going crazy. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. She starts going in a spin and rises up in the sky, and then she goes up. She's telling me, you got to do something about this. And then I woke up. I mean, sounds legit. It's totally legit. It's got to be. Yeah. I mean, crazy, crazy, crazy. Now, another, another side story here that gets a little crazy is the fact that there was this woman who drove a 
school bus in Madison County in the small communities of Alabama and Forum. And her two sons, her name's Norma Jean Walden, her two sons, Danny and Gary Walden, were friends with Billie Jean and her brother, Robert. Her sons grew up outside the circle of the Huntsville drug scene. Danny and Gary were their names, and Danny was a welder, and later in his 30s, he fell into the drug scene. However, Gary hated drugs and didn't even smoke a cigarette. His vice was that he got into drinking, and he drank... (laughs) So he didn't even touch drugs. He didn't even do cigarettes. But well, my God, he drank a lot. <laughs> oh, he drank a lot. I can't wait for you to hear this one. So, Yvette Murphy, his ex-wife, said that her experimentation with drugs nearly broke up their marriage. But Gary had six DWIs. Did you say six? Six. Shoo, buddy. His drinking had gotten so bad, one family member said that he once pulled into a left turn lane in Sloan Springs and passed out before the light changed. That can happen. His favorite pastime, according to his friends and family, was to get loaded up on beer and drive his Ford pickup truck along the dusty back roads of Madison County. And his favorite spot was the web of creek beds and two-track roads near Billie Jean's house. After a state trooper found him drunk sitting behind the wheel of his truck, one attorney advised Gary that he would have been better off not being found with the keys. So Gary took to tossing his keys any time he got drunk. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a solid plan. It's yep. like the guy that was uh, tried to say he wasn't drinking and driving. He's only drinking when he was at stop signs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a, he's got a great defense. I mean, you get a good enough lawyer. So Robert McKnight, Billy Jean's brother, said that he would tow Gary's truck home with his tractor on the nights that Gary couldn't find his keys. Now, this habit may have contributed to Gary's death. Now, Gary had joined his brother Danny's welding business in the months after Billy Jean's murder. Sometime the brothers would swap trucks. They had closed the business for a brief period of time due to their disagreements over Danny's drug use. Gary would confide in his stepmother in late February 1995. He was increasingly troubled by the seven-month-old murder case in Alabama. Quote, I know some stuff about Billie Jean's murder that I'll have to carry to my grave. Norma Jean Walden remembers him saying, if something happens to me, I want to be buried in Marshall Cemetery. Three leaks Three weeks later, he was. According to records and statements on March 18, 1995, after an all-day fishing trip and drinking spree, Gary ended up with some friends at the Angler's Inn, which was a lively bar and restaurant on the Benton County back roads near Beaver Lake. Gary had been kicked out of his house that weekend by his girlfriend, Teresa Keeney who had dumped his clothes at Happy Perry's front door in Clifty. Now, Teresa and Gary were building a house together at the time. Teresa said later the dispute was just temporary and childish. Back at the Angler's Inn, Gary would pinch a waitress on the bootocks. No, that's frowned upon. Yep, yep. He's going to get hashtag me too. Yep, he is. He's going to get canceled. But 
The ensuing argument between Gary and the waitress was scarcely noticed by the crowded bar on that Saturday night. Around 10.30, Piney Point volunteer firefighter named Doug Trossel loaded Gary and another couple into his own truck and drove them back to the desolate woods around Arkansas 127 near Lookout in Benton County. Trossel dropped Gary off at his truck, which was parked in the woods off the dirt road. Gary stopped by the truck to relieve himself and told Trossel he was going to take a nap. Trossel thinks Gary climbed into the driver's side of the truck and leaned over to go to sleep. Trossel goes on and spends an hour at a nearby home of a man named Vernon Metcalfs, who was a friend of his and had also been at the Angler's Inn that evening. After spending that hour there, Trossel heads back to his own house. When he passes Gary's truck at 11.30, a fire was burning from the base of the front wheels to the back of the cab. Trossel says he ran over to the driver's side door. The window was closed, but the handle was cooled to the touch. Trossel opens the door, looks inside, and then closes again. Bullets began exploding inside the cab. Quote, he was gone from the waist up, so I just shut the door. I tried to call for help on the CB, but the ammo began exploding inside the truck, and I couldn't hear anything. He goes back to Metcalf's house, which it took him nearly 30 minutes, he says, to reach Benton County 911 because he kept getting a busy signal or was being put on hold. Investigators found... Gary lying on his side and locked into what they call a boxer stance. Now, Gary stood six foot one inch tall and weighed 185 pounds. When his body was pulled from the truck, the remains weighed 112 pounds and he only me- measured 47 inches. So, when he says that he was gone from the waist down, he was literally gone from the waist down. Gary's blood alcohol level was .33, which is more than three times the legal limit. Investigators only identified him through dental records. According to Associate Medical Examiner Frank Peretti, Gary died from smoke inhalation. Quote, we really couldn't determine where the point of origin of the fire was, said Sheriff's Captain Sam Blankenship. It was a suspected murder. An autopsy report and investigators' files released by Benton County Sheriff Andy Lee traced the intensity of the fire to an accelerant in the cab. Lab tests identified it as either liquid wrench or a type of charcoal lighter fluid only sold by Safeway and Kroger. The fire burned an arc of 15 to 20 feet into the forest. Sheriff's Office reports indicate that it disintegrated the wiring on the three quarter ton Ford pickup truck and melted the ignition investigators found four key rings on the floorboard as if they had been dropped from Gary's pants pockets the truck keys were never found yeah because he tossed them I know I know he tossed them in random places they gonna get lost eventually <laughs> now after after Trossel passed a polygraph test, Andy Lee's office ruled Gary's death an accident and closed the case. In the file, they included a bulletin from Ford Motor Company warning that the engine mounts on Gary's year of truck were prone to loosen and could cause separations in the fuel line, especially if the truck was driven over rough roads. But Trossel says Lee's findings conflict his years of experiences as a firefighter in both Kansas and Arkansas. He said he was dismissed from the Piney Point Fire Department because of Gary's death. But he states, quote, in my opinion, there were a there was a fire set outside the truck and one set inside the truck later. 
I've been in several car fires, and it doesn't fit with what I've seen. Gary's family would agree with him. Gary Walden's stepmother, his ex-wife, Yvette Murphy, and his natural mother, Shirley McCormick, have all asked Andy Lee to keep investigating, but Captain Blankenship said the case is officially closed and considered an accident pending new information. Quote, it's like something didn't look right. It was just, it just wasn't kosher. Things didn't fit, Murphy would say. That's Gary's ex-wife. But he was a drunk and a nobody, and there wasn't anybody there to push it, end quote. Now, Una McKnight, who was Billie Jean's sister, states that on the morning of her death, she knew before she pulled up to the house that Billie Jean was dead. She said she made her way past the laundry room and Billie Jean's child's room, Mackenzie's. And then she goes down the hallway towards her sister's bedroom. She said the odd things in the kitchen is what led her to believe something was a foul. She states that Mackenzie had stayed with his father that the night before. That morning, his father had brought him back to Billie Jean's house to pick up the four-wheeler. And Mackenzie runs inside and said that he found his mother's body sprawled against the wall in her ground floor bedroom. Confused by what he seen or what he sees, he runs out of the house and tells his father, Mommy has fallen painting. Now, Chick Phillips went inside to check on his son's story, then panicked, loaded his son McKenzie into his truck, and drove away, first to a salvage yard north of Billie Jean's property, then back to the home of Earl and Edna McKnight, then to his own house when the McKnights were not home. Finally, he reached the McKnights by telephone at the Ozark shop. Only then did he report the death to the Madison County Sheriff's Office. The McKnights called their younger daughter, Una, who I said had drove out to Billy's house. She was surprised that the police were not already there. Impulsively, she headed for the master bedroom, but like I said, what caught her attention was the kitchen was in disarray, and that's something that Billie Jean kept, quote, according to Luna, neat as a pen. On the counter were two candy wrappers and a birthday card. Now, she says that her sister Billie Jean loved Hershey Kisses with almonds, but the candy wrappers were not Hershey Kisses wrappers. The card was from Rusty Kane, but it was two year old, a two-year-old birthday card. She states, quote, I find the real odd that it was laying out. She just didn't lie things out like that, Una said. She put it in a drunk drawer or put it somewhere in the chest. In Billy's bedroom, Una found a horrible, horrible bloody scene. Blood had been splashed up to within two feet of the ceiling on the walls adjacent to the bed. Two large pools of blood stained the sheets. A t-ball bat, broken into two pieces, lay on the floor nearby. On the bedspread, twisted at the foot of the bed, lay a piece of her sister's right middle finger. Billie Jean's body was against the far wall, face up beneath the air conditioner her head resting against a smudged black dresser. Her scalp had been split open and her hair was matted. Good Lord. Not a nice scene. No, it's brutal. Brutal. 
A lamp with a stained glass shade lay across her legs. Her arms were badly battered and bruised. Her white t-shirt was pulled up over her breast and her stomach was bruised. Her white panties were stained red. Yuna, a nurse, checked to be sure her sister was dead. Billie Jean's body was stiff with rigor mortis, she would state. Later, she would realize that Billie Jean couldn't have been surprised in her sleep because Billie Jean slept in t-shirt and panties, but she always took off her jewelry. When Una found her, she was still, Billie Jean was still wearing a gold necklace, a wedding ring that once belonged to Rusty Kane's grandmother, another gold and silver ring, and an ankle bracelet. Her watch lay on the floor with the band broken and a braid that she had had in her hair was shattered, embedded in her skull. Furthermore, the autopsy showed that Billie Jean had 0.54 grams of meth in her blood, but it hadn't worked its way through her system, indicating that she had just recently taken it as if she was expecting some company and then passed before the drugs could make its way through her system. Or perhaps they did the drugs together. Correct. Which would, if you're intent on murdering the woman, it'd be a waste of drugs. Or maybe you just, that's how you gain your confidence or something. Now, they said that a clock was pulled from the bedroom wall that read 335. And so that's what initially, that's the time they thought she had initially been killed. But investigators believe that the clock was a red herring to throw them off and more likely a misleading piece of evidence. Or maybe it was set to that time as a message. I didn't think about that. That is a good one. Maybe that was a message to, I don't know who. I'm not smart enough to have a good answer for that, but maybe it was. You never know. Maybe they set the clock to that. You're right. They may have. Now, investigators stated that across the room, a radio still played the strains of soft rock from one of Billie Jean's favorite stations, but it wasn't playing at the normal volume, according to her sister, Una. Quote, she always had her music on, and I hated it, Una stated. She always cranked her music up a little too high, but this, this was very low, and it was still on, end quote. Now, her brother Robert was the next to arrive, and Una tried to warn him that he might not want to go in. He did, and in doing so, he entered the house just before Rusty Kane called from his law office. Now, get a load of this. According to Una, Kane seemed confused at first, and Una would state, us girls kind of sound alike on the phone. I wish I could remember what he said, but it was kind of like he didn't know it was me. I don't know if he thought it was Billie Jean or not, but he was really testing the waters. Quote, you've got to be kidding, Kane said when Una told him that Billie Jean was dead. By then, Una says she was crying, and she handed the ball the bone the phone to her brother and shortly after her brother would hang up and a few minutes later rusty would arrive although he insisted to investigators that he had spent a quiet night at home una and robert testified or told investigators that rusty showed up red-faced and looked as if he hadn't slept all night uncharacteristically Rusty was wearing old clothing and a gimme cap. Now, I had to look up gimme cap. A gimme cap, according to what I found, is basically a 
publicity hat that somebody makes and gives out. And I'm thinking in the late 90s, that's probably them foam trucker meshback hats. <laughs> or an Ashton Kutcher hat. Yeah. Yeah. Una states that Rusty tried to enter the bedroom and she ordered him, quote, not to touch Billie Jean. She said she realized then that Rusty could be both the prosecutor in the case and a suspect in the case. Quote, he looked at Billie Jean and stopped. He said, I can't believe someone would do this, Una says. He tried to cry, but he didn't cry. When Deputy Livermore arrived, he would order all three people out into the yard and made Una sign a statement. Rusty turned to speak briefly with Robert, then went back into the house. Now, both Una and Robert say that Rusty entered the home repeatedly that day. That night, state police investigator Fogley drove to Rusty's house to pick up his clothing and his shoes. He also took the clothing and shoes of Billie Jean's son's baby daddy, Chick Phillips. The FBI lab in Quantico supposedly found no evidence on the clothing of either to trace back to Billie Jean's residence. But, investigators say, two police officers on the scene later signed statements that Rusty Kane had wandered the crime scene with spots of blood on his tennis shoes. So if Fogley goes and picks up his clothing later the same evening that he's been walking around, that gives him plenty of time to clean them up. Now, Una and Robert McKnight, Billie Jean's parents, say most of Rusty clothes and his mustache trimmer were gone from the house, Billie Jean's house, that Saturday. The clothing Billie Jean had worn the day before was hanging haphazardly on what had been Rusty's side of the closet. So who would have killed Billie Jean? Many people had a reason to. And Which we got to tread lightly because it got us in trouble before. Right. Now, Baker, Fogley, and Everett, the former special prosecutor, have all declined to discuss all elements of the criminal investigation with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. But a videotape of the crime scene shows a vacuum cleaner in the middle of the bedroom floor away from its usual storage place. It also shows a black rectangular case with a silver label and a silver seam protruding from beneath the antique dresser in one corner of the bedroom. Investigators say the black case was never reported to Everett, which was the former special prosecutor. No one in Billie Jean's family remembers seeing such a case before or after the murder. The vacuum cleaner bag was not taken by police. Robert McKnight says it was missing when he took the vacuum cleaner home weeks later. Now, investigators took no note of the unmade upstairs bed, which the family says Billie Jean had not used since she had built the addition. The crime scene videotape shows that the bed covers were pulled to the end of the bed and the pillows were in disarray. The family did not return to empty the house until Billie Jean's bedroom had been recarpeted and repainted weeks later. By then, someone had gone upstairs and remade the bed. The family would strip the bed and sell the sheets. How are you going to sell them sheets? Don't ask me, man. <laughs> what would be the significance of the bed being unmade, though? Are they trying to say that somebody was staying there or she had a sleepover or something? They had someone, someone was there and 
after the murder, I guess, was so cold and calculated, they went up there and laid down. Kind of like the the one in Japan we covered. Yeah. Guy stayed for, like, almost a whole day. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Nearly a year after the murder, state crime lab technicians refigured the time of Billie Jean's death to be between 11 p.m. and midnight and offered differing explanations for the source of hair found on her hands. Having first been told it was red-dyed facial or pubic hair, investigators picked up one Madison County man and forced him to give hair and blood samples for DNA testing. Then the lab rechecked the hair and learned that it came from Billie Jean's own head, which is a little disconcerting. The only certainty based on the pattern of blood was that the first blow struck Phillips while she was in the bed or on the bed. She lifted her hands to protect her head and lost the piece of her middle finger as the beating continued. Good Lord, you got so he knocked the finger off with a baseball bat. Yes. O F T oft. One hundred percent oft. Golly, you're swinging that thing hard. Well, I mean, you're trying to kill her anyway, but I'm just saying that's some violence when you break a bat and break a finger oft. There's a lot of rage in that. So, she took the brunt of the beating on her right side, leading investigators to believe the assailant was left-handed. Her T-shirt, torn in back and pulled up over her breast, indicates she was jerked across the room, overturning the lamp. When the beating failed to silence her, investigators believe the killer choked her to stop the noises she was making. Investigators also believe the killer or killer's faked signs of a break-in due to a screen on the window to her child's Mackenzie's bedroom being pried off and discarded in the yard. However, the dust on the windowsill was undisturbed, and a piece from a child's puzzle lay on the sill where it had been before the murder. Now, a half-moon-shaped slit had been cut in a screen covering the double French doors to the living room, but those doors, secured by deadbolts, appeared to be undisturbed. Also undisturbed was $301 in cash in Billie Jean's wallet. So like you have stated numerous times, Coach. If you're going to murder somebody, why not rob them? It doesn't make any sense. You killed somebody. You're going to prison for the rest of your life. They're not going to harp over 300 bucks. Take the time to get the money. And if you are trying to say that it was a break-in, why the hell are you going to leave cash laying around? I don't think, I don't know. Don't ask me. I didn't murder her. Because if you had, she would be $301 less. If I ever do murder somebody, that our listeners are going to be like, well, did they rob them? Like, yeah, they did. Well, coach is a suspect. <laughs> and then all of our listeners will come to your rescue if they say, the man was still found with his wallet in his jeans with $500 in cash and two gold bars in his pocket. And they're going to be like, no, nope, coach didn't do it. Couldn't be me. Couldn't possibly be me. <laughs> Not happening. Now, the lawyer and investigators hired by Rusty Kane believed that the person or persons who beat and strangled Billie Jean left sometime after midnight and returned in the early hours of the morning to stage the break-in and pulled the clock from the wall. Now, according to this news article, they went as far as to check satellite photos taken early of the morning of the death and that those photos showed no evidence of a vehicle in the area. Thelma Smith, who runs chicken houses just up the road behind Billie Jean's house, is convinced someone was there. She lives close enough to the property 
to see the glow of Billie Jean's lights through the woods when Billie Jean was coming and going. It's just a short distance up a grassy, rutted path from Billie Jean's house past Smith's chicken houses to the homes of Billie Jean's parents and her brother, Robert. Smith had gone to tend the chickens between 5 and 6 a.m., and she said she heard a vehicle engine pulling hard up the hill. She was puzzled when she didn't see its headlights reflecting off the wall of the chicken house. It was cool, and the curtains were rolled up tight so you could see out, she said, but I never saw the headlights. She thinks that whoever chugged through the woods that morning knew the trail well enough to drive it in the dark. I don't care who you are or how well you know a trail. You can't drive it in the dark with no lights on. That's just impossible. Now, one investigator would compare the case to the movie Clue. And if you've never seen the movie Clue, you need to, just for the sheer comedic value. You know what's great about that movie? Like, cause I only I didn't see it in theaters. I was too young. I, I mean, I'm either. sure you saw it. I, in no, I rented it. But you know, if you watch it on DVD or whatever, they have they show the three endings. Right. When it came out in theaters, they just sent one of the endings to vary like to various theaters. So, like, if you saw it in Dallas, it wasn't going to be the same ending as if you saw it in Little Rock. And that's amazing to me. That's awesome. Yes, I did love the fact that it ended, and then you had on the like once the credits rolled, they were like. But it could have happened, and then they did yeah. that other one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what the investigator brings up. It says, in, in the end, in the movie Clue, all of the suspects played a part in the crime, but there is no humor in the reality for Earl McKnight. Neither his reward offer nor his own investigator, former state police officer Quimby Johnson, has produced any valuable leads and Earl McKnight is now battling a heart problem and makes regular trips to the Veterans Hospital in Fayetteville. Quote, probably won't live long enough to find out who killed her, he said. Now, we are not we, but I decided that the exploits of Billie Jean are well documented in our previous episode. And in that previous episode, we did make the poor judgment of saying that she ran in... She had, how did we put it? She, I'm not saying it because we're going to get in trouble again. Well, we try, no, I'm not trying, trying to get in trouble. trouble. I'm trying to correct the wrong. We said that she, said we kind of, the man, we said with the manner in which she led her life right. left no shortage of suspects. And that's not necessarily true. The circles she ran in left no shortage of suspects. Now it is well documented in their first episode that she, uh, did like, the extracurricular party drugs, as well as she liked a good tussle in the sheets. I mean, who the hell don't, though? I mean, honestly, we were no place to, though we weren't judging, we were in no place to seem like we were judging. Correct. There are stories that we discussed in our first episode that she does. about six deep than we were talking about. I know. that's, That's the only thing that I could equate to my shitty notes when I looked at them was that we did like to, to partake in the, the bruise before we got started. <laughs> but it is well documented in various articles that she did answer the phone one night in the middle of sexual intercourse and a man was asking to come over and ride that train and she said, Honey, that stallion has already left the station <laughs> and hung up the phone and enjoyed the rest of that evening. So, if you're willing to answer the phone in the middle of it, is it really A, that good, or B, yeah, are you such both, an... Both men in that situation should have been offended. 
Or are you such a cold-hearted person that you wanted to make sure that the other person knew that you were still having sex without them, and they were, they you found someone else? So, yes, suspect list goes from her ex-husband, her son Mackenzie's father, and Rusty Kane is the leading one. But the thing is with Rusty, they're not so sure that Rusty – well, I take that back. There's two camps out there. One says that Rusty's wife had finally had enough of Billie Jean flaunting it in her face and that she killed her, and Rusty kind of cleaned it up or staged it to where it didn't look like a woman did the murder. The other camp is that she had something on Rusty, and in a fit of rage, she said that she was going to go somewhere else with someone else, and he loses his shit and snaps. If you read... The book, When Money Grew on Trees, at the end of it, the author gives his explanation as to what happened, and he kind of alludes to the fact that maybe Sheriff Baker knew the killer or that Sheriff Baker looked the other way because Billie Jean started talking about things that she didn't need to talk about. So when we say the list of suspects is long, that's why we didn't go into individual suspects, and that's why I chose to give you some background information about things that we didn't cover in the original episode. I did find the fact that the one guy who was a drunk stated to his stepmother that he knew some things that would get him killed that he would have to take to the grave about Billie Jean's murder, and then... Mysteriously, three weeks later, he is in a single car, car fire that was so hot that it melted the ignition and burnt the man in half. Good Lord. That's intense right there, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, yes, this is a totally different episode from the one that we originally recorded. We wanted to give more background information, I guess, in the scene at the time, the comings and goings of the drug scene, we are not saying by any means that Billie Jean was a drug dealer. We do know for a fact that she did partake in certain drugs of choice back then and that she was a informant for Sheriff Baker. You can listen to our first episode. We do cite some of the more fanciful tales of men in her life, but by no means are we victim-blaming saying that she deserved this. No woman deserves this. So that is the Billie Jean Phillips part D. If you have not listened to our previous Billie Jean episode and you have somehow stumbled through this one, we suggest you go back and listen to that one, and that is episode 16. So I'll get into recommendations, and I have a recommendation for you. And that recommendation is, and this is out of me being, I guess, ill and petty, but if you have ailing parents, have the uncomfortable conversation with them that you need to be put on their HIPAA sheets and do the hard conversation about getting a medical power of attorney in all medical decisions if they are unable to make decisions for them. I also would like to state that since it is close to the holidays, please, 
I know family can drive you batshit crazy around the holidays. Please enjoy the time you have with them because you don't know when that next holiday will occur and they're not there. That is my recommendation. And yes, it's a little selfish and it comes from a place that I'm still pissed about. And that's why this episode is late, but that is my recommendation. Sir, do you have something fanciful? That article you sent me about 10 of the best Bigfoot sightings, that was a good one. Yeah, that was a good one, but I'm going to recommend the Instagram page, We Bigfoot Believers. Yes, that is a good one. I've been sending you a ton of stuff from them, just videos I've never seen before. I hadn't either. I didn't know there was two Provo videos. I didn't either. Yeah, there's some very good, very, very good stuff on that Instagram page. So a lot of some of it, you're like, no, that's crap. But, you know, that's what you're going to get it when if you don't believe you're going to think every single one of them's crap. But if you do believe even even you true believer go, OK, that was bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the thing. And that's what one of our patrons had expressed. And that's what I was trying to convey was that he and that's Mr. Richard Smothers kind of he's the same as we are. He kind of. uh approaches everything with a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, he did call us out on the Missing 411 Kids episode. He said not to be condescending, but someone born in 1959 would be 63 now, not in their 70s or 80s. And so my reply was that uh, you're not good at math, and I had taught math all day long, so you would have to forgive us. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, who the hell knows anymore? <laughs> I was trying to do math on in my head on the fly and still talking. That's why. But anyway, but no, Mr. Richard Smothers, we do appreciate the criticism, even though you did give us a glowing review in your Patreon thing about our missing 411 episodes. But I agree with you. Any of this stuff like the Bigfoot, uh, the Dulcie base, any of the cryptids we discuss, missing 411 stuff, Skinwalker Ranch, you have to have a healthy dose of skepticism. And then when it just like short circuits your mind, you've got to be willing to say, I don't know what the hell else it could have been. Yeah, exactly. So reminds me, uh, when people like, I don't have time for people that don't believe in conspiracy theories or that comedian that says you don't believe in just one. (laughs) Yeah. That's who I'm talking about. (laughs) Saying all conspiracy theories, but you don't believe in any. Like, you think the government's just batting a thousand? (laughs) He said, said, government is put in charge of all of its people. I'm in charge of one son, and I lie to that son of a bitch all the time. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yes, I do. I can attest to that. Hell, I used to lie to my kids, teaching them. (laughs) No, 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 no. I would never. No. But anyway, all right, Coach, you got anything else? Brother, you know I don't. Deuces.